Um, we are past the halfway point now, just past the halfway point of our sermon series called Sound Doctrine. Um, we're taking a closer look at some of the songs that we sing in worship every week and some new songs that we can add to our repertoire um, for the purpose of kind of discovering the truth behind it, the biblical um, understanding, foundation behind these worship songs that we sing. Um, it is important for us to ground our faith not in these songs, not in Christian culture, not in pastors, but in the Word of God. Um, and that is what we're hoping to do always during this time, this gathering time, and specifically during our worship in music time. Um, and so hopefully this series has been a reminder to all of you about um, the intentionality behind singing together, the intentionality behind the songs that we sing together, the lyrics that we sing every week, um, because they, they truly reveal the truth of Scripture and the truth of who God is in them. So um, each week we ground ourselves in Scripture, and then we connect that to a song that we sing in worship, um, examine the lyrics, look at why we choose to sing that song, and why that is something that we believe in, why these lyrics are even a part of the worship experience. Um, so hopefully this series has done and will continue to do over the next couple of weeks. Um, it has revealed the purpose and the meaning of what we sing. These lyrics are um, an act of faith when we sing them, an act of faith in the God that we believe in and the God that we believe interacts with us here and now in our world. Um, so just a heads up before we jump into this week's sermon, Mike, Pastor Mike and I are tag-teaming this scripture, tag-teaming this sermon. We are team preaching today and next week. So uh, I don't think either one of us have ever done that. I don't know if you've ever done that. So this will be a fun experience, a new experience for all of us. So give us some grace, and uh, hopefully we'll all be blessed by God's word this morning, not just whoever's speaking, but by the word of God. Um, so now would you help me in honoring God's word together by standing as we read our scripture together. From Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. A man named Simeon was in Jerusalem. He was righteous and devout. He eagerly anticipated the restoration of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Led by the Spirit, he went into the temple area. Meanwhile, Jesus' parents brought the child to the temple so that they could do what was customary under the law. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. He said, Now, Master, let your servant go in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples. It's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed by what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This boy is assigned to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that generates opposition, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your innermost being too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, who belonged to the tribe of Asher. She was very old. After she married, she lived with her husband for seven years. She was now an 84-year-old widow. She never left the temple area, but worshipped God with fasting and prayer day and night. She approached at that very moment and began to praise God and to speak about Jesus to everyone who was looking forward to the redemption of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So this text this morning, it, it begins with kind of a shift in setting. So we've just heard about this. There's going to be a picture. We've just heard about the miraculous birth of Jesus, right? The angels are singing about, or the, yeah, the angels are singing about it. The shepherds are, are hearing this and worshiping this newborn baby. Um, and then they go off to spread the good news of this baby's birth. So this is, this is the setting that we are just coming from. And then after eight days, which was the Jewish custom, um, as is detailed in Leviticus, um, the Jewish custom was to then take the child and to take him to the temple to be um, circumcised, to be named, and to kind of present the child at the temple. Um, and so we arrive now at the beginning of our passage this morning in the town of Jerusalem which is the capital of Israel. It's kind of the hub of Jewish culture and tradition. And it's here that we have one of the very rare biblical stories about Jesus as a child. Kid Jesus. Oh, there we go. Is it working now? No. Oh. Anyways. Um, So the kind of famous story of Jesus as a kid is the one where his parents lose him, right? I think I've preached on that one before. Um, that's that's the, sto- the main story that we know about Jesus as a child. But this story is one of the, again, very rare ones that details Jesus as a child, as a baby, in fact. Um, and this story focuses on what this baby Jesus means for the early followers and what the presence of this baby signifies for the ones who had been waiting for so long for this coming Messiah. And the first of these is a man by the name of Simeon. Um, there's, there's no mention of Simeon outside of this text in Scripture, um, outside of the Gospel of Luke here, and there's not much known historically about who Simeon is. So everything that we know about Simeon comes from these few verses that we read here. Um, the first description that we read is that Simeon is righteous and devout, or just and devout. He's a man who loves and follows the Scriptures. His life is dedicated to honoring God and God's Word. It also mentions that uh, Simeon is eagerly anticipating this restoration of Israel, or other translations say the consolation of Israel. He's looking forward to, he's literally been waiting for um, what has been revealed through the words of the prophets. So this restoration, this consolation of Israel, it is the promise and the hope that God would one day come and rescue and comfort his people. This promise, it, it gives this hope of salvation of forgiveness of sins, and of saving the lost. And it says that the Holy Spirit rested on Simeon and that it was revealed to him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So in some ways, Simeon is a prophet himself. Um, Not in the sense that he had any kind of special responsibilities, not an an official prophet per se, um, but he has now been given this divine inspiration that the Messiah will come during his lifetime and that he, in fact, will come face to face with this Messiah, this Redeemer who has been promised, who he has been waiting for for years and years and years. Because Simeon knows the words of the prophets of old. He, he knows the promise of this coming Messiah. And now because of the Spirit, he knows that it will happen and be fulfilled in his day. The end of pain and suffering, the end of God's perceived silence in, the, in that day, 
and the beginning of this new rule and this new reign and this new kind of king, it's the end of that. His eyes will see the savior of the world. And this spirit that rests on Simeon and then leads him into the temple on this exact day and this exact moment in which this prophecy is set to take place. I'm sure we've all heard of coincidences, right? We've heard of a coincidence. Um, A few years ago, Kayla and I went to a Mariners game and almost literally as we walked in the gates, we ran into some friends from college who were there on that same day at that same game who arrived at the game at that same time. That's a coincidence. But this is no coincidence. This scenario with Simeon is not a coincidence. This is divine, divine happenings, right? This man who has been waiting for so many years in righteousness and devotion, it says, he's waiting in the temple. And at this same time as the Christ child is there is when he comes. This, this divine impulse has brought him into the temple at this precise day and this precise hour and Simeon, it says, came by the Spirit into the temple. So it's not, it's not the rumors and the testimonies of, of what was going on that he likely had heard about. Um, it's not that that brought him into the temple, but it is the Spirit of the Lord that has rested on him. He had likely heard some of these rumors that were flying around about, you know, the, the birth of this messenger that had been promised, John the Baptist, um, and, and what that meant for God's people. It was, it was likely a somewhat publicized thing that had happened. Um, But Simeon is not guided there by any kind of rumor, by any kind of hearsay. He is in the right place at the right time because of the prompting of the Spirit, because of his faithful listening and waiting for the Lord. And all of a sudden, Simeon becomes kind of a baby snatcher, right? Mary and Joseph, they bring in baby Jesus, and it says that Simeon took Jesus in his arms, I don't, I don't know if, they don't, they don't appear to be too alarmed, so he probably wasn't a real baby snatcher. But it says he took the baby Jesus into his arms and he praised God. And, and while it's not the, the poetic praise of Mary's song or of, of the song of Zechariah, um, it focuses on this profound theological truth that this baby that he is holding is the fulfillment of God's promise to save and to redeem and to restore all people. Because again, Simeon knows the prophecies, right? And now the Spirit has rested on him, and he has been promised that he will see the fulfillment of these promises and these prophecies. And at this moment, he recognizes what is being revealed to him as he holds this baby. He recognizes what this moment signifies. He knows that now, cradling this infant, the time has come. God has sent the one who will restore and Simeon enters into this kind of new reality. He, he no longer has to fear death. He no longer has to be consumed by the worries and the heartaches and the hardships of this world because his eyes have seen Christ, the restoration, the consolation of Israel that he has anticipated for so, so long. Simeon's words in response to this presence of Jesus in his arms tells us a lot about what this moment means to him. He says, now, master, let your servant go in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples. It is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. Although this text doesn't reveal any specifics about 
Simeon's age. Um, it's likely that he was on the older end of, of his life, right? Um, he seems to be waiting for this one event, this one moment, this great promise to be fulfilled before he dies. And his, his words here imply that he is, he is just completely satisfied. As he gazes on the face of this baby, all that has been missing in his life, the presence of Christ, is now here. He has experienced it, and he says, God, I'm ready to go. Take me now. As uh, Pastor David Gusick puts it, it was as if Simeon were commanded by God to keep a lonely watch through the night until he saw the sun come up. This was for him God's sunrise. And because Jesus had come, Simeon could be relieved of his watch. So Simeon realizes that humanity's need is for salvation. And this, this was the universal salvation that God had sent him for all people, had sent and put in his arms and the presence of his Messiah, of Jesus Christ, gives Simeon this ultimate hope. This ultimate hope that is even beyond death. He had longed and hoped for this restoration of God's people. And this, in this moment, nothing else seems to matter. His hope has always been in the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. And now this hope has been fulfilled and revealed. And so Simeon's hope, even into death, is in Christ and in Christ alone. But Simeon's not the only focus of our text this morning. We also hear um, about another character who, like Simeon, is only mentioned in this specific part of Scripture, in this text. Anna is a prophetess, um, which is a fairly rare occurrence for there to be a female prophet. Um, she's one of only a few women in the Bible. Um, other women are the, the prophet Isaiah, his wife is a prophetess, um, Miriam or Deborah, there are, are very few women female prophets. I mean, it says that Anna had only been married seven years when she became a widow, and she remained a widow for the rest of her life, and that now she is very old, which is a very kind thing to say about someone, right? The text says she's very old. Um, and depending on how we interpret this, um, either Anna is now 84 years old, or she has been a widow for 84 years. Um, it's not quite for certain there, but either way, she is very old. <laughs> no offense to anybody in here who's 84 plus. I'm just going by what scripture says. She's very old. Um, and the majority of her life has been lived without a husband. And since becoming a widow, Anna has dedicated herself wholeheartedly to the Lord. The text says that she never left the temple area in Jerusalem, but instead she spent her time worshiping fasting, praying. And so like Simeon, Anna is very devoted to following the Lord. And like Simeon, her many years of sacrifice and service and commitment have given her this great anticipation for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Lord that is spoken about in the scriptures. And also like Simeon, Anna's main focus is this restoration and this salvation that accompanies the presence of the Messiah. And Anna's entrance onto this scene likely, uh, or it comes likely when Simeon is still holding uh, Jesus. In that moment, Anna, she immediately recognizes who Jesus is and what that means, that she's the, he's the one that she has been waiting for. And it says, just again, just like Simeon's story, it says that she immediately begins to praise God. So here was this woman whose life 
had maybe not gone quite according to plan. She had been married seven years before her husband passed away. A woman whose circumstances had not turned out like she would have hoped they would. But God had revealed himself to Anna, and her life had been a testament to the hope that God's promise can give us. Though she had known this sorrow, she was not bitter. Though she had, she had this great age, she never ceased to have that hope. And though she was likely very lonely, she never ceased to go to God's house, to worship in God's house. Anna's hope in this coming Messiah had obviously given her life meaning and purpose. And that hope was sustained. It had sustained her through her life, this life of of hardship and loneliness. That hope was fulfilled once again in this baby, in the presence of Jesus Christ. So what these two stories show us is that the promise and the fulfillment in the presence of Christ means something. Both Simeon and Anna have been waiting for a long, long time, a lot of years for this Messiah. Anna's hope has sustained her through the many trials and tribulations in her life. And when her hope is fulfilled by the birth of Jesus Christ, her desire is immediately to share that with others. She is moved, she is so moved by this experience with the baby Jesus, and she knows so deep down in her heart what that means, that she immediately goes to try and offer that hope of Jesus Christ to those around her. Christ gives Anna this hope during her lifetime on earth. And Simeon's hope is an eternal hope. He is so greatly assured of God's promise to him and to humanity that this experience with the baby Jesus allows him to say, Lord, take me now. I'm ready. His Redeemer is greater than death. So what is there for him to fear? His desire has been satisfied. His, his kind of final desire in life has been satisfied. And this salvation has come. And so Christ gives Simeon this hope even in death. And in Anna, we see that Christ gives us hope in life. And Simeon, we see that Christ gives us hope in death. Christ is our hope here and now and for eternity. Christ is our hope in life and in death. And that is exactly what we are going to sing about in a, in a little bit um, and what Pastor Mike will continue to talk about this morning, that Christ is our hope in life and in death. Um, so a little bit of an intro to the song here. Um, this song that we're talking about this morning, Christ, our hope in life and death. Again, the lyrics are in your bulletin there. Um, but this song was written by quite a few people. Jordan Coughlin, Keith Getty, Matt Merker, Matt Boswell, and Matt Papa. That's a lot of maths. That's 60% if you're counting. Um, so last week we talked about two of those mats, Matt Boswell and Matt Papa. We also talked briefly about Keith Getty. Um, but along with those three, there's a couple of new guys to this crew of songwriters. Jordan Coughlin. Jordan Coughlin is a worship pastor at Christ Covenant Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, in addition to that role, Coughlin, kind of, he, he writes a lot of songs, mostly with Getty music, which is Keith and Kristen Getty, but as well as Sovereign Grace music. So that's Jordan Coughlin. And then the third Matt, Matt Merker, he is the Director of Creative Resources and Training for Getty Music. 
Um, but he also serves as director of congregational singing, which I think is a fancy way of saying worship pastor, at Edgefield Church in Nashville, Tennessee. So together, this group of five guys, um, this group of songwriters works with Getty Music, and they wrote this modern hymn that we're looking at today, Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death, which is a very long title. Um, But what unifies all of these men, other than the fact that they wrote this song, is that they have great passion for Christ, but also for Christ's church, the local church. They are all involved in some way in local church ministry, whether that is being the pastor of the church, being a worship pastor at the church. Um, they are all involved in local church ministry in a variety of roles. Um, and and I, I went and I looked at each of their websites to see what they had to say for, about themselves. And each one kind of has, they, they say it in different ways, but they each have some form of this statement about what their purpose and their passion for songwriting and leadership is. Writing simple, Christ-centered worship songs that teach Christian doctrine for churches to sing. And that is beautiful, I think. Um, This specific song that we're looking at today was written out of this sense that today's local church needs something, and that something that they identified in this song is hope. That today's local church, and it was written during COVID, I believe, um, and so there was this need for great hope because there were a lot of things that looked and continue to look very hopeless. And not just a faith that they're writing about this faith that is not just grounded in thinking that everything's going to work out okay. It's, that's not what this hope is about. This song and Christian hope in general is grounded in a hope that is in Jesus Christ. That even in the face of pain and suffering and death, we can have hope in a God that has conquered all of that. So now, I don't, is the video ready? No, video is not going to work. So we, uh, you can look at the lyrics in your bulletin, um, but now we're going to kind of transition. It's going to be a little bit aw- more awkward, but Mike's going to come up and, and continue on in this journey talking about Christ, our hope in life and death. I love technology. Sometimes I don't. Today I don't. All right. So um, insert song here. Um, and now I'm coming up. Uh, so, so part of, part of when, when Sheldon and I are talking about team, team preaching like this, again, we've never done this before. So it's a little bit awkward and a little bit weird. Um, and we're trying to figure it out. And hopefully it'll be better next week than it was this week. Um, but, but when we came to this particular song, uh, how we started off was by uh, both of us kind of listened to it, read the lyrics, uh, thought about it, prayed about it. And then we came together and we, we brought the texts that we both kind of thought about when, when, we, um, when we heard the song. And, and he had the, this text that you read already and I had a different text. And we, we talked about maybe you know, each presenting our text and, and then it became like two sermons and we don't want that. So, uh, and maybe you don't want that either. But, um, but, but I think what I'm going to do right now is I'm just going to kind of walk us through the song um, and talk a little bit about about its form and about what the, what the purpose of it is. Now, now uh, Sheldon talked about the song and how it kind of came out, and that it was kind of just grounded in hope. And and I really like that quote that he that he said about this idea of these these guys come together and they just desperately want to have songs that are good doctrine for the church. Um, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but some of the songs that are sung on the radio, even in the name of Christian music, are not good doctrine. 
um, they're actually ones that sometimes I listen to and I cringe because I go, that's, yeah, that's iffy at best. Um, but what's interesting about this particular song is, is how it came to be. Now, now Sheldon mentioned that it came, one of the songwriters, they just want to desperately give hope to people. And, and during COVID, right, we needed hope. I needed lots of hope during COVID. Um, but the, the other way that this song came to be is that one of the songwriters was thinking about um, something called the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism is, uh, is a document that was written shortly after the Protestant Reformation. It came out of a place in Germany, Heidelberg, um, and it was commissioned actually by a leader of a particular area. Um, I had his picture to go up there. It would have been really great. Um, You would have seen it maybe, but it's not working today, so that's okay. Um, But catechism is basically a big word that is uh, indicative, and the definition would be that it's the, the process of teaching doctrine in the church through the process of using question and answers, okay? Um, So let me read the actual definition, which I do actually have written down. It was supposed to be up there for you guys, but um, again, sorry for technical difficulties. So catechism is a summary of the principles of Christian religion in the form of questions and action and answers used for the instruction of Christians. So so in many, many church traditions, um, they have an official catechism that you go through as a young Christian or as a child, usually about the range of 12 to 13, you enter into catechism. And the purpose of catechism is to basically teach either new Christians or folks coming into the church, young children, about the the content and what we believe. Okay, there's lots of different catechisms out there. Uh, The the Catholic Church has its own catechism, the Lutheran Church, the the, um, Reformed Church. They all have different catechisms that they use. But all of them follow the general same idea of this question and answer, right? So, so there's something called the Westminster Catechism that is used in, I believe, I'm trying to remember which church, Reformed, I know that. Am I right, Dave? Okay, good, Dave. Dave, I knew you'd help me out on that one. Um, and the, one of the questions is, what is the chief end of humanity, right? Wait, say that louder, David. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Right? So, so catechisms have this kind of question and answer time where it's, where it's a, a, a leader would propose a question to the congregation or to the catechumens and they would answer with the, the foundation or the doctrine of the church that is appropriate, right? So, and the, that, the beginning of the Westminster Catechism is, is I, I seriously, I just got chills, right? Um, because it is, it's such beautiful language. So, so there's the Westminster. This one's the Heidelberg Catechism. Again, it was, it was intended and it was written and it was commissioned in order so that the people in this particular region of what would later become Germany would have a good grounding in particularly Reformed Calvinist faith. That's, that's why it was, was commissioned. That's what the, the guy wanted to do because it was an area that was largely dominated before by, by Catholic teaching, Okay. So, so what happens in this song and what we have in this particular song is it is written as if it was catechesis, right? Um, as if it were a catechism. And one of the authors had the Heidelberg Catechism in his head as, as they were writing this song. And they, they came to this, how do, we, how do we combine this idea of hope and this idea of teaching the faith, this catechism question, And in his mind was the first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is our only hope in life 
and in death. Right? So, again, had you heard the song, you would have heard that the, the first line and lyric of this particular song asks that question. What is our hope in life and death? Now, the song has three verses, right? The, the first verse is generally just sort of overall theology, talking about, about Jesus, talking about Christ, right? Answering that first question, what is our hope in life and death? And kind of goes through, right? Christ alone, Christ alone. So you can, you can perceive this, this song is a kind of a call and answer, right? So, so think of it, you know, some of you have sung row, row, row your boat in a round, right? But, but this is more of antiphonal. So like this side of the church might say, what is our hope in, in life and death? And then this side of the church would say, Christ alone, Christ alone, right? So think of this song as this call and response, this, this back and forth between, between the, the asking of these deep questions that, that, that plague us as humanity and then the answers that, that scripture and that theology and that, hey, there it is. Hey, if technology goes wrong, Regan gets it, right? So thank you, Regan, for, for fixing that for us. All right. Where am I? Just got to make sure. There we are. Right? So, so the content of the song is this antiphonal, like, what is our hope? And it's this question and answer throughout the song, right? So who is our, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls belong to him? Right? You, you can see this teaching that is going on. And, and this song in particular is not like it's one particular scripture that, that seems to have inspired it. it. It's that what is happening is these, these songwriters are, are dealing with these ideas of hope. How, where is our hope? And, and in dealing with the questions that the world has, where is our hope in life? And where is our hope in death? And, and they're, they're taking and they're drawing from, throughout Christian history and throughout tradition and all of scripture, right? The, the sum total witness of the Christian scriptures is the answer to the question, what is our hope in life and in death, right? Right, what is our hope in life and death? Well, it is Christ alone. And where do we have our confidence, right? Not, not that just that God is, although that is a great confidence, but that, but that Christ holds our lives in his hands. That is confidence. The, it's the confidence that Simeon can say, right? You can now dismiss your servant in peace because I've seen the Lord's anointed the Christ. But it's also our hope in life, right? The, this, this confidence that Anna has that after waiting for so long, she can say and preach to the people, right? Look what God is doing. You're waiting for the consolation of Israel. And here it is in this person, in this hope. Give hope for the future. Hope for what is to come. What is our hope in life and death? In Christ alone. Who holds our days in his hands? Christ alone. What comes apart at his command? Nothing. Right? So, so this idea that, that God and Christ is the content of our hope, that's, that's the first verse. Right? Then the, the second verse gets into a little bit more of, of sort of the, the problems of the human condition. Right? What truth can calm a troubled soul? Right? That God is good. That God is good. The second verse, as I, as, I, as, I, as I visualize it and as I think about it, is, is asking those questions of what does it mean for Christ to be our hope in this life? Because in this life, 
You will have troubles. Jesus says that to his disciples. In this life, things will go wrong. Things will go bad. We've talked about it already in our prayer time this morning. Unexpected things happen. Loved ones die. And God doesn't deny the pain and the sorrow that that causes. And this song addresses that and says, but what can calm our troubled soul in those times? That question for me is the God is not a jerk question. Right? What calms our trouble? So when things are bad around us, what can give us hope and calm and peace? That God is, but also that God is good. Where is his grace and goodness known? It goes on to ask in our great Redeemer's blood. We have hope in a good God and God demonstrates God's own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who holds our faith when fears arise, it asks. Who stands above the stormy trial, who is above all, who sees the grand picture, who sends us the waves to bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ, right? We, we hear this, this idea that as we go through life, through the good and through the bad, it is Christ and God who holds us together and it is in him that our hope lies. And then as we move to the third verse, I like to call this our hope is in death verse. Now, I'm gonna admit this bothers me a little because the authors, they switch from interrogative, asking questions to just declarative. And that's okay. It's just a personal hangup. Just sort of like, I'm not even, wasn't even an English major. It's just sort of that you can't just change in the middle of a song, but they do and it's good and it works. So, so let's just go with that. I just had to get it out of the way. But here it moves from sort of that questioning of who is, what is, to the declarative, Right? First off, starts, unto the grave, what shall we sing? Okay, still that questioning. And what do we sing? Even unto the grave, Christ he lives. Christ he lives. I know many of you are familiar with the old hymn, because he lives, right? We say and we quote, though he, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Christ has gone before. It's the baptismal covenant if we are united with him in our death, we will be raised with him in new life. Continues to ask those questions. Christ, he lives, Christ, he lives. And re- will, reward will heaven bring eternity with him. Christ, our hope in life. Christ, our hope even in death. And this is where it moves to declarative. And, and how can you fault it? The, the only response, the, the, the most appropriate response to the work of God in our lives is praise. What else can we do but praise? And so they move to this declarative, right? Then we will rise to meet the Lord. Our, our hope is not simply for this life. Paul says if our hope for this is just for this life, we above all people are most to be pitied. But Paul says we have hope in resurrection. And so we declare we will rise to meet the Lord and sin and death will be destroyed. 
and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. We move from this questioning the content of our hope, our hope in life, our hope in death, to the most appropriate response, which is praise and declaration of who we are proclaimed to be in Christ. That just as we live with him and for him, we also will live with him forevermore. And we have this chorus, which is wonderful. The, the chorus is wonderful because it is. It is, that, it is that praise. It is that response. The work of God, right? What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. And in response to that, what do we do? We sing hallelujah. Our hope is eternal, not just for this life, not just for the life to come, but both here and there. We praise God and we give glory to God for we are his in Christ alone. We sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Now and forever, again, here and there, we shall sing. Christ our hope in life and in death. This is a great song of catechesis, right? For Christ is our hope. Our hope in this life and our hope in the life to come. What brings this very, very poignantly to me. And what comes to my mind when I hear this song, and I'll share it with you, is the Apostle Paul. Particularly as the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi. If you've ever read the, the, the book of Philippians, you know that it's, it's a fantastic and wonderful book. And, and of all of Paul's writings, it's actually, the, it seems to me the most joyful and hopeful. Paul used the joy a lot, right? Make my joy complete. He says, what is most interesting to me about Paul writing this particular letter is the circumstances under which Paul writes. I mean, he writes just wonderful flowing prose and, and praise for, for the people at Philippi. And, and he has such hope and such joy that is expressed through it. It's hard to believe that he wrote it from prison. Did you know that? That Paul wrote this particular letter from prison. If there's any place that it's hard to have hope, I would imagine, is prison. Particularly for Paul, he's not serving time for crimes he's committed. Let me rephrase that. He's not serving time for doing stuff wrong. He's serving time because of what he has done in the name of Jesus, which admittedly was a crime in the Roman Empire. But because of his faithfulness in proclaiming Jesus Christ, the one crucified, our only hope in life and death, Paul is thrown into prison. And it's not really sure whether or not he'll get out. Now, Paul has great confidence in God. Others have been sprung from prison, including Paul, at a different time. He knows it's possible. But what I love is, is, is Paul writes this in the beginning of the book of Philippians. He writes, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, by life 
or by death. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I, and I don't know which I prefer. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come again. I, I look at kind of the story of Simeon and Anna, and they're, they're the beginning sort of of this idea within the Christian church, right? Jesus is still a baby. He's brought to the temple. And these are two who recognize who Jesus is, what God is doing in him, and declare this hope, right? Simeon says, I can die happy. For God has shown me the redemption that God has promised. I'm ready to go. Christ, my hope in death. Anna looks, and after having lived a long life, she looks and she sees, and she can now point to the content of the faith that she has had. The redemption of Israel. The redemption of Israel is not some sort of future thing after death for her. She's not talking kingdom of God type of stuff, at least heaven type of stuff. She's talking here and now. This is the hope in our life. The redemption of Israel through, amazingly enough, this little baby. Christ, our hope in life and death. And Paul's kind of on the other end. After the resurrection of Jesus, he begins to express what they had said, but in one person. For me to live is Christ. Christ, my hope in life. Christ has called us to live life and said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And I don't think Jesus meant just heaven. I have come that you may live life to its fullness now. Paul says, for me, living is Christ. I get to preach. I get to teach. I get to help others progress in their faith. To live is Christ. Christ, our hope in life. But then he says, but for me to die is gain. In fact, Paul says, I'd rather be gone. To be united with Christ in the way that we will know as we are known. It, wow, he says. For me, living is Christ, dying is gain. Christ, his hope in life and in death. Paul, I don't, we don't exactly know where this is in the timeline when we talk about Philippians, but we know that Paul's life does ultimately end in death. This is a rather graphic painting of Paul's beheading in Rome. But we know that Paul did not head to this Worried life didn't turn out like he expected. Nor worried what would happen to him. From everything we read about Paul, all of his letters to and from churches, Paul probably marched and said, my life is hid with Christ and God. My hope in life and even my hope in death. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. Or just Grady. But before we do, actually, can you guys go back to that? I've got one more, one more thing. Um, I thought it'd be fun and instructive for us to actually, together, go through this question in the Heidelberg Catechism. So if we can put my slides back up, maybe. <laughs> okay, how about this? 
We'll, we'll just tack a little bit. We'll change course. Oh, I'll get, oh, there we are. Wonderful. Thank you all. Good work back there. Appreciate it. So I'm going to ask the question. And then I'd just like us to say together the answer to this question as it's written in the Heidelberg Catechism. And then once we're done with that, I would just say we can sing it too. For Christ is our hope in life and death. Will you please stand with me? So church, I would ask you, what is our hope in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me with such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Christ, our hope in life and in death.
as you go, go in the grace and the peace and the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our hope in this life and the life to come. You are dismissed. Go in peace and serve the Lord.